From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Today we're going to talk about intimate partner violence with Dr. Jenny Cronin, the Director of Graduate Nursing at Lemoyne College, and Social Worker Lauren Cunningham, the Prevention and Education Director at Vera House. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Hi. Thanks for having us. The uh, prevalence of intimate partner violence, how, how often do you see this? Well, we know that intimate partner violence is incredibly common. Um, according to a national survey that was done, the National Intimate Partner and Sexual Violence Survey, um, about 36% of female-identified people and about 28% of male-identified people um, have experienced rape, physical violence, and or stalking by an intimate partner in their lifetime. So pretty pretty high that's numbers. That's a lot. A quarter to yes. a third? I mean, that's a lot. Yes, yes. Very, very prevalent. Um, um so you mentioned, uh, I mean, rape or sexual violence, stalking, I mean, all of that counts as intimate partner violence. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And then we also know that, that people may experience other forms of abuse that don't rise to the level of being actual physical violence. So I would imagine the numbers are even higher for people that are affected by those forms of abuse. Yep. Psychological abuse, or verbal abuse, or verbal okay. abuse. Mm -hmm. Financial uh -huh. abuse. Mm -hmm. Well, let's talk about the dynamics of intimate partner violence. How does, how does this begin? Well, what we um, know about intimate partner violence is that there's often a dynamic of power and control in the relationship. So one person seeking to maintain power over the other person. And that that power is maintained through a variety of different tactics, like Ginny and I just mentioned, mentioned that can be physical violence, uh, sexual violence, verbal and emotional abuse, uh, financial exploitation, um, isolating a person, keeping them from people that they love and care about that might be able to help or support them, um, blaming them for the abuse, saying that it's it's their fault. Um, so, and, and any type of um, action that puts someone in fear for their safety or their children's safety could be a form of abuse. But in a uh, beginning of a relationship, um, maybe those things aren't as obvious. Mm -hmm. right. I mean, how do you, how, I mean, nobody wants to connect with someone who's going to be abusive to them. How do you weed that person out of your life before it gets to that point? I think that what what often happens is that there's a relationship that's established prior to the abusive behavior um, coming to light, and that what we often see is that there's an escalation of abuse, um, typically starting out more with the emotional and verbal forms of abuse, and then sometimes escalating from there to the physical and sexual violence. So that it's not, I often use the example, like if somebody hauls off and slaps you on the first date, you're probably not going to go out on a second date, right? right. Um, but so that, that there's often this very kind of subtle escalation that we see. And so there may be things that aren't that noticeable right. about a person's behavior, really. It can be very subtle and coercive. It, it can build gradually until there's uh, an event. But by that time, you're invested in the relationship. Right. There's other things happening. So it's not so easy to remove yourself by that point in time. Um, can you tell me, how would someone know that their coworker or friend or neighbor or whatever is in an abusive relationship? Um, 
Is it always that obvious? I think the reality of it is that it's often not obvious um, to people. Um, survivors of domestic violence often, um, and their and their partners who act abusively, often go through great lengths to try and hide the abuse and, and not let others know that it's happening. Um, but there are some signs that you could look out for. Um, of course, any injury that, that a person has sustained could potentially be a red flag for intimate partner violence. But also, um, you know, someone talking about that maybe in their relationship there's a lot of fighting or arguing or somebody who's, you know, a relationship where maybe the person has ended the relationship and gone back maybe multiple times. Um, things like someone maybe not having access to finances or always having to check in with their partner. I think, I think um, a lot of us have probably had experiences in our lives where we see maybe a friend who is you know, always checking in or having to let their partner know or ask their partner if they can do something. Um, those would definitely be red flags. Also, how people act when they're with their partner and when they're not with their partner. So do you see kind of two different presentations of a person when their partner's around or not? So those might be some things to look out for. But again, uh, I, I think oftentimes when people do find out that someone's a survivor of uh, intimate partner violence, they're often surprised to, right. to learn that. Well, you, meant, you said survivors often try to hide the abuse. Why, why is that? Sometimes there's shame associated with it, self-blame that's associated with it. Um, people don't readily admit these things, and and they don't often talk about them, so it can be difficult with it. It seems it'd be a very sensitive situation. So if if you notice some of these like red flags in a in a friend or coworker or neighbor, um, how would you go about helping? That can be a, a really difficult um, process to navigate for people. Um, and I think the first thing that, that people want to be conscious of is the, the safety concerns that are there for someone who may be experiencing intimate partner violence because often there is an incredible investment in keeping that hidden. And partners who act abusively will often threaten if you tell anyone, you know, I'll hurt you, I'll kill you, I'll hurt the kids. Um, and so if you are going to, to have a conversation with someone, the absolute most important thing is that you do that in private, not in front of other people, in front of the children. And what we often encourage is um, expressing concern for someone. Say, you know, I've, I've maybe noticed this or seen this, and I'm, I'm worried about you. Is everything mm -hmm. okay? Um, and oftentimes people may not feel comfortable disclosing initially or ever, uh, the disclosure, of course, isn't the goal. The goal is safety for people. And so if someone maybe doesn't feel comfortable acknowledging what's going on, saying to them, you know, I just want you to know that I'm, I'm here for you no matter what. I'm here to help. To offer that unconditional, non-judgmental support, I think, is the best thing that we can do for people. And that can just plant a seed. Maybe the person's not ready to talk about it right then and there, but if they know that you're um, concerned about them, it plants a seed. They can come back to you later on at a different time when maybe they're feeling a little bit stronger and talk about it at that point in time. And right. I, I also think there's a lot of normalization of the abuse that goes on for people. Maybe they've grown up in a family where this was their life experience. And so that planting a seed piece might be the first time that anyone's ever said to mm -hmm. them, 
hey, what's going on here doesn't seem okay. Uh, so I think that's that's a real opportunity there to just kind of crack that window open that, that maybe maybe it doesn't have to be this way. It could just get them thinking that mm-hmm. this is not right. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, you're listening to Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Jenny uh, Cronin. She's the director of graduate nursing at Lemoyne College and social worker Lauren Cunningham, um, the prevention and education director at Vera House. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the role that health and medical professionals have in identifying intimate partner violence. Dr. Cronin? So it's it's really hard. There's... Um, there's since since 2011, the Institute of Medicine said, you know, we really think this is such a pervasive problem. All women should be screened for intimate partner violence, um, and it's taken some time. But but this universal screening of women has has taken hold in the medical community. I think for some women, um, for some providers, it's a little bit. I'm not going to say it's easier. It's not an easy conversation to have, but um, women's health nurse practitioners, women's health physician assistants, obstetrician gynecologists, folks that have uh, exclusively women in their population, I think they 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 tend to ask about it more often. Um, in the primary care settings, it becomes a little bit more difficult. I don't think that uh, primary care providers are as comfortable with screening. There's other things that take time away from, um, this is, it's not a asking the question. You need to have some time. You need privacy with the patient. You need to have some time to talk about it. You need a little time to educate about it. Um, there are other things that compete for time in the primary care setting, you know, so it can be complex. Um, but what, what does, if I may interrupt, what does the screening consist of? So the screening is not difficult. There's there's new uh, models for this universal education, screening and education. Um, the screening tools you should use a valid validated screening tool, but they're not they're not complex. It can be as simple as four questions. So I like to use the the hits uh, tool, which is 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 anyone hurting you? Um, are they insulting you? Are they threatening you? Are they screaming at you? So it's it's just uh, simple tools. But I think you know having the relationship with patients, taking the time to ask, is is the hardest step. Um, I think sometimes providers are afraid of opening Pandora's box. What if what if they say yes? Keep in mind, many women go through this. It's not. It'd be easy if somebody showed up with a black eye. You would want to ask about that. But that's not what happens. And so asking every woman about it, incorporating it into regular care um, is actually kind of simple. I think what can be what can be difficult is what do I do if somebody says yes? What do they do if somebody says yes? Well, there's there's these great systems that are in place. I think if you have a practice where somebody's very comfortable, we call these champions, where they um, have a background in education about intimate partner violence, they're comfortable with it. Um, the next step would be bringing in people like Lauren for the staff to do education. That does two things. It, it provides the staff with education, but it also provides them with a visual contact. They, they remember Lauren from Vera House. That's a good resource. Um, if somebody discloses that they, they are 
um, in a in a violent relationship or an abusive relationship, um, having a system developed for those people, having a safety plan, you know, what needs to be done right then and there. Um, when we talk to students about this uh, together in the classroom, I always say it doesn't need to be overwhelming because I I can ask the question. I can I can. Um, if the woman discloses, I have resources. So I might not be able to help that woman right then and there, but I can call Lauren and in a private setting have that person talk with Lauren or another service agency that helps. And so it's it's really identifying it, having a plan in place if there's a safety issue right then and there, having a plan in place, having resources and um, right in place so that staff can work with those resources right then and there. And knowing what's available in the community. No, that's the biggest part, to me anyway, is knowing what's available in the community and how the systems work because they don't always work the same. But having one one uh, community service agency that you can call, um, they will then refer you on. So I always would refer to Vera House for things like that. I think another thing that's really important, though, it's not just about screening um, it's also about follow-up, and so newer models are looking, if it's universal, it's, it's asking the question, maybe planting the seat on the first visit, but if women come back to healthcare a lot for, their, for this, themselves and for their children, so it's, it's planting that seat and asking on the first visit, but asking on other visits so that they realize, yep, this is, this, you know, I just, I incorporate it as a regular part of care, you know. Well, oh, you, you mentioned uh, women, but um, at the very beginning, Lauren, you talked about how 28% of men mm -hmm. have been in a relationship that included some violence. Yes, and so right now, the, the, the research in this field is still pretty limited, I would say. So the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force has a, a B level recommendation for screening women of childbearing age. There's just not enough evidence at this point for screening, universal screening for men, but I don't know if at some point we will be there. And when you look at um, data um, related to lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender people, they experience even higher rates than heterosexual women of intimate partner violence. And so I think there's I think that's where the field's headed. We're just probably not there yet. Right. Well, we've seen and we've read a lot about this um, Me Too movement where women have revealed workplace harassment and discrimination. Do you think women coming forward about harassment helps other women come forward about physical violence? Are they connected? I think that the Me Too movement has had an impact for survivors of many different forms of violence to be coming forward and, and speaking up. And so whether it's sexual harassment, intimate partner violence, sexual violence, child sexual abuse, um, I think that's opened doors for, for right. a lot of people. Women are feeling much more empowered, I think, since the Me Too movement to speak up. Good. Well, that's good to know. Well, thank you so much for this information. My guests have been Dr. Ginny Cronin from the uh, from Lemoyne College, graduate nursing, and social worker Lauren Cunningham from um, Fear House. Thank you both. Thanks for thank having you. us. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink.